Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Yeah, this is Kirk from Fort Collins calling again. I don't get it. I called once. I asked you to stop talking about the WNBA and you're still doing it. Why? This reminds me of the crap my ex-wife used to pull. Once again, I love women. I cherish women. I have a daughter. And this morning I had a nice chat with the uh, female who uh, was working the drive-thru window and gave me my breakfast sandwich. And you know what? I asked her if she likes the WNBA. And guess what? She said no. So there you go. One for one. She also didn't give me any hot sauce. But... So, look, the league is just not entertaining. They don't have a star. They don't have a LeBron, a Le- LeBronia, whatever. Um, so just please stop talking about it. Thanks, hon. This is Off the Looking Glass. I'm Kate Fagan. I'm Jessica Smetana. Kate, we are already on episode two of Off the Looking Glass. How did you think episode one went? It's been quite a journey. I thought episode one was stellar. Oh, stellar. Obviously the highlight of your career. Am I right? So far, yeah. I mean, we'll see what episode two and three have in (laughs) store. But I think one thing that we didn't do in the first episode because we wanted to dive right into things was we didn't really like talk about ourselves a lot. So if people Mm. found this podcast just wandering around Apple or Spotify, they might be like, who are Jess and Kate? So I figured now might be a good time to do that. Yeah, you want to jumpstart that? Can you also add some hidden talents, favorite childhood cereal, uh, dream car, anything that you want to pick from that? My name is Jessica Smetana. I work at Metal Arc Media. I'm on the Dan Levitard Show with Stu Gatz. Uh, I'm a producer. I worked at Sports Illustrated before this, SB Nation. And before that, I was at Not Yukon. I don't have a dream car. I don't have a favorite childhood cereal. I will tell you my opus at SB Nation, my first job was when I went to the Mall of America for the Super Bowl and I ranked every lids in the Mall of America because there are six six and a half lids at the Mall of of America. Oh, wow. Okay. Was that, uh, was your lid story uh, in Best American Sports Writing? Or was it up for anything? Um, Yeah, they texted me that year and and they said that it was really good and it just didn't make the cut. But it was like a first runner up for for best American sports writing. Yeah. I mean, it's it's providing a lot of functionality because when I go to Mall of America, I'm going to pull up that story and I'm going to know which lids to go into. And I'm not going to waste my time wandering down long corridors to the wrong lids. So Right, right. Don't go to the one in Macy's. Like, just don't even waste your time. That one was ranked last. Yeah, that's like going to the Starbucks within the grocery store. I mean, you know you're not getting getting the best version of Starbucks there. Okay, so before I got to Off the Looking Glass, which actually might be my dream job, I worked at ESPN for a long time. I covered the Sixers before that. Before that, I played hoops at the University of Colorado. And... Getting here to do this podcast, and I'm not joking when I say it's my dream job because I spent a lot of time at ESPN and there were so many dead ends when it came to trying to do things differently around talking about women's sports and comedy. And I mean, you can imagine at ESPN, we couldn't do the athletes fake ad, right? Where we're kind of lambasting the NCAA. So to have the kind of freedom on this show to bring joy and humor and enthusiasm to women's sports, it's pretty great. Secret talents. Um, I can I can talk like Donald Duck. Um, you, I mean, you you have to do it now. Yeah, I have. Well, you know what? This will be an Easter egg. At some point during this episode, you will hear me talking like Donald Duck. So maybe stick around to the very end if you're all that excited about my Donald Duck voice. 
So I ranked all the lids in Mall of America and you spent like years toiling away at ESPN trying to get stories about women's sports published. So we are definitely a good match right now. Yeah, I actually think we have some yin and yang happening. Kate, what are we going to talk about in today's episode? We should tell the people what's coming up. And obviously we've already teased what will be a great moment, which is when I talk like Donald Duck. Okay, yes. And aside from that, I think we're going to talk to a guest, Kara Goucher, who is going to tell us about running and the obsession with metrics. And off of that interview, we will go down a rabbit hole on our country's obsession with fitness tests. Kate is also going to tell us a story about someone who should be a household name, and I will get her to do it in her Daffy Duck voice. It's a Donald Duck voice! Sorry, Donald Duck. (laughs) We are going to have plenty of surprises sprinkled throughout the show. And please, please do not fast forward through the ads. They're the best part. The thing that makes you a great athlete is oftentimes knowing yourself, reading the room, reading the court, reading the track trusting yourself and I feel like we get so caught up in data that sometimes we take away the very basic thing that makes most people great athletes which is their ability to read things around them to trust themselves to trust their own feeling how are my legs feeling how is my lungs feeling and that's something you're never going to get from a data point our guest today and that voice you just heard is a two-time Olympian a silver medalist at the World Championships, an NCAA champion at the University of Colorado, go Buffs, and also an outspoken advocate for clean sport. As you'll see, we dive right into this conversation, which was sparked by an Instagram post that she put up of an image of herself from the 2008 New York City Marathon, where she set an American course record. But what we talk about is people's response to her body in that image. All of this conversation was sparked by a story out of the Oregonian about the use of DEXA scans, which measure body fat and bone density, which were being used on runners at the University of Oregon. All right, let's do it. Let's bring on Kara Goucher. One thing I've been thinking a lot about, and it came up for me again in reading this piece about Oregon runners was like, how did your perspective like ebb and flow over the years about how you thought of your own body from like being a kid, you're just like, I'm running, you know, to, oh, this is a body that I control. Like, how did you see it evolve? Yeah. I mean, like, it's been like a lifelong journey, right? Like so many other athletes and specifically women, I think. I mean, the first time I ever had a skin fold test done, I was in high school And I went to train at the Olympic Training Center in Colorado Springs. And I think I was probably 16 years old the first time I met with a nutritionist who talked to me about my diet, how much fat I ate and how many calories I ate. I didn't even know what that was, right? Like I had a second freezer right outside my bedroom door in my basement (laughs) growing up. It was like stocked with fudgesicles and I would just like eat them while I was studying right? And then I got home and I was like, Oh my gosh, these are 100 calories a piece. And so that was my first little like, learning about calories, but it was still pretty normal, I would say. And then when I went to college, like it was a little insane, like everyone around me was very, very thin, everyone around me was very, very controlling with their food. And I feel like I fought it for a while. And the way I fought it was by like gaining more weight. <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm not going to be like you. I'm going to stay normal. And, but then I would say like the end of my college career, I took it way too far. I got way too thin. I'd set up all these crazy rules for myself. Like thou shall only have fun on Friday and the rest of the week. You know, it's got to be <laughs> yeah. super serious. And what happened? I ran really well for like a year. And then I was injured for four years. I could not get healthy to save my life. So it just like sort of ebbed and flowed. So then I finally had to like start eating better again and get my health back. And then, you know, one of the greatest things that ever happened to me was in 2005, I was way above what my race weight was. And I went to Europe and I ran a personal best. And I was like, oh my God. I actually, this is the fastest I've ever been and also the heaviest I've ever raced at. And I knew that I needed to get my body a little fitter, but it was like this mind-blowing experience of like, the last time I ran that personal best, 
I weighed, you know, 20 pounds less than I weigh right now. And I was starving all the time and I was miserable. Right. And I just ran faster than that right now. Mm -hmm. And so it's never easy. I don't want to say that I have a perfect relationship with food my entire career. I was told I was too big. I was told by sprint coaches, oh, you're from the Midwest. That's why you're hardy. Yeah, yeah. I was told on photo shoots, oh, we like shooting you because you're one of the few people that isn't like just so skinny. You're like my whole You're so brave. You're so brave. (laughs) I'm so brave. I'm like, really? I like monitor everything I put in my body, you know? I was always taller. I'm 5'8", and a lot of my competitors are, are quite small. And so it was like a constant everyday reminder that I was big. I never was big, yeah. but you know, I felt like huge. Like I would be on the starting line being like, all right, here we go. It's me and all these tiny little women. Let's, let's <laughs> see what the big girl can do. <laughs> oh my yeah, God. So it's, it's like a lifelong thing. And so, yeah, it's like, do I have body image issues? You bet I do. You know, like I, I put that post up and people are like, if you're seeing those things about your body, you have body dysmorphia. Yeah. I have yeah. body dysmorphia. <laughs> I'm alive <laughs> in America. <laughs> <laughs> my so. whole freaking life, people have been pointing out my flaws and and like talking about what I'm eating and talking about the way I look and talking about the fact. I mean, people would always tell me as a professional, so weird you don't have abs. So weird. Do you do sit-ups? Yeah, yeah I do 10,000 sit-ups a day because I'm so <laughs> self-conscious about it. You know? Yeah, I have body dysmorphia <laughs> because like you said, I grew up in America. Yeah, I've got problems. Right. And that's like, the thing. And like, you know, I got like, that was a knee-jerk reaction post. I read that U of O article about the coaching there. I got, it was total knee-jerk reaction and I could have worded it better and I could have explained it better. But essentially, that was my point, that that was the fittest I was in my life. I accomplished something that day that still to this day, no other American woman has done. The fastest person ever, before super shoes, before technology, all this stuff. And yet at that time, there were people the following days telling me, you could be the next great marathoner if you just, you know, got rid of that hardy figure, if you just, you know, tightened up a little bit. I mean, I had just come from the Olympic Games where I ran personal best and I ran the American course record in New York. And like, that's my point, right? Like, where do I go from there? I'm running 120 miles a week. Trust me, I was monitoring my diet at the time. (laughs) And maybe, maybe that's just the way my body looked. I mean, it looks great. I get that. I get that it looked great. But my point is like, I still had cellulite. There was skin that hung down. It still wasn't Hollywood perfect. Yeah, maybe, just maybe that doesn't exist. So I think often about this New Yorker article from a few years ago, and the writer has this line at the end, and she was basically like, what's happening in our world now is that our ability to know what's happening in the world is expanding without end. And yet our ability to actually affect any change on the world is remaining mostly static. And like now there's this huge discrepancy, and I'm applying it to the athletes in getting a DEXA scan, because like now athletes have insight into everything, everything that makes an Olympic runner. Whereas like when I was growing up, all I cared about was like, oh, the other local high school star who's a couple years older, she can put the ball between her legs. So I should probably figure out how to do that. I wasn't like, oh, her body fat is 9% and she's has all of these metrics. I wasn't following the best player in the galaxy I just had like my little local person that I followed. And I'm assuming for you in Minnesota, it was like, well, whoever won the the big local race when I was a freshman, like that's kind of my goal. I want to hit that PR. I'm not looking to a DEXA scan. So it's like, how do you see the impact on young athletes with this like ever expanding amount of information that we have? I think it's a little bit scary. Like you, I remember my stepdad would get the Star Tribune during the track season on the weekends because it would have like the state rankings. And I dreaded that day because it was like, oh man, I'm not the fastest anymore. I got to step it up or whatever. And that was my context. But now, you know, high school athletes can see other high school athletes training. They can see their mileage. They can see their times all across the country, not just in Minnesota, everywhere. And I think that it's when I used to um, run at Nike for years and they had a high school meet there and parents would say to me, like, my daughter's really, she's hit a wall. She's running 75 miles a week. Should we go up to 85? And I was like, oh my God, you should take a month off. You should go make her play <laughs> soccer. You should totally have her play pick up basketball. Like, no, she shouldn't do more. You know, like she should go be a kid. Like she is overtrained and she is exhausted. And that's why she's hit a wall. But I feel like it's a slippery slope and I'm not sure it's good. I feel like the kids coming up have trained so hard. 
they expect so much. A lot of them are just like hardcore so early on. Where's the joy? I feel like the, a lot of the joy is already gone. And so, yeah, sure, it's cool to be able to compare yourself to other people and to see what other people are doing. But I worry that that there's a long-term harm from it, that careers aren't going to last as long, that people aren't going to enjoy it as much because they overdo it because they're trying to keep up with some standard that now is the standard, which it wasn't 20 years ago. Yeah, because I think you you should always have your eye on, for me, it was basketball, like someone who inspires you. But I feel like it used to be, and I thought it was important that it existed this way, that it was like, it was in a context that was somewhat manageable and achievable for 15-year-old me to look up to 17-year-old player down the road. And then when I got to college, to look up to senior player on whatever team. And then like it kind of expanded whatever was in your eyesight or people that you knew that were in your orbit, you could then inspire to be like. But now when you're 14 and you want to be like 28-year-old U.S. Women's National Team superstar, and that's your context, and the context is the whole world, I would be paralyzed by all of that. I would be like, how will I ever get to that? Yeah, all the little progress that that 28-year-old national player made, like, you're not seeing that. So all the little progress you're making feels like a failure. Well, I'm still not there yet. I'm still not there yet. Whereas if you didn't see that and you were just focusing on you and you were like, oh, I'm making this progress. I'm getting a little bit better. I mean, I think that's just sort of a problem with society in general now. It's like instant everything all the time. And it's just not how it works. And it's certainly not how it works in the world of sport. But we're just setting kids up to feel like failures. And it's it's sad. Okay, we wanted to put a pin in that conversation with Kara Goucher because talking about the impact of DEXA scans on athletes got us both thinking about ways that we have tried to instill whatever general concepts of fitness on kids over the years. Yeah, the main thing that I remember from high school was the presidential fitness test. The presidential physical fitness test! I assume that you also had to do that. We should probably tell people the origin of the presidential physical fitness test because it's fascinating. It is, and it starts with this national obsession with fitness when Teddy Roosevelt is the president, but where it picks up and gets interesting for me, because like we talked about, I used to work at Sports Illustrated, is a little essay that JFK wrote in Sports Illustrated in 1960 called The Soft American. I took out this quote which says, The harsh fact of the matter is that there's an increasingly large number of young Americans who are neglecting their bodies, whose physical fitness is not what it should be, who are getting soft. And such softness on the part of individual citizens can help to strip and destroy the vitality of a nation. And so the language of this essay is like, he's basically just like fat shaming the children of America and comparing them to European children and, and saying, we're going to end up losing our power as a nation because of all of our soft ass kids. So get to the yeah, gym, it's a moral lift some damn weights, little Climb some rope. six-year-old Billy, you're soft. Get on the rope now. It's ridiculous. Yeah, I don't know anyone who you bring up physical fitness tests to and they don't immediately freak out in like inner shame that they haven't (laughs) been able to express in years. I remember busting my ass to run a sub eight minute mile senior year. I don't remember why. I think just because like I did the other stuff. So I was like, well, I might as well just like go 10 for 10 here and, and run a really fast mile. And wait, 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 Jess, did you win the, the, the presidential physical fitness? Yes. Test? Did you get the medal? I did get a medal. You know, I was one of those like super competitive kids in gym class. And I'm embarrassed to admit that, but it, I did require me to run a sub eight minute mile, which like I played soccer and running distance was not my forte. So after that, I wanted to puke my brains out, but then we just had to go sit in like U.S. history class. It's actually somewhat redeeming that in 1960, people were saying the same stuff that they then said in 1970, then 1980, then 1990, and now. So the moral panic has been happening for generations. I'm really upset that it was perpetuated by my guy JFK, who as a good Catholic you know, Northeasterner, I have an affinity for. 
But I think what was really interesting about going back to this original physical fitness idea was this idea that Americans were getting soft because Europeans could perform better on this set of tests, which set off this initial moral panic about the physical fitness of kids. And years later, they realized that it's not like European kids were more physically fit than American kids. It's that the exercises that they were being asked to do were part of calisthenics and that European countries were doing more calisthenics more frequently because of Nazi Germany. You know, Germany was like marching and stretching and like doing their calisthenics and that Americans were like, whoa, 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 we don't want to be doing that. And they did more team sports. And so this whole moral panic has always been a flawed premise. And I feel like we see it generation after generation. First, it led to the physical fitness test, which by the way, was not really a physical fitness test. Because did you ever practice any of the things that you were doing? The presidential physical fitness test was the pointless and traumatic part of most people's childhood, which I know Jess was expertly laid out in a podcast you and I both listened to beforehand, maintenance phase. But I never static hung on a bar except for the three to four seconds I did in gym class. <laughs> it's also hilarious because you were introduced to it at a younger age and like, I was a, basically an adult when I had to do it. And like any physical fitness that like this test would have taught me would have probably not mattered at that point in like getting me to adopt good habits or, you know, teaching me ways to train my body. Like it was too late at that point. They were like, here, go run a mile, hang on this mm -hmm. bar, do some knee push-ups, call it a day. <laughs> I feel like you were on the winding down of the presidential <laughs> physical fitness. Like you were in the last few years where it was even a thing where they were like, yeah. we're not trying to shame and warp the minds of kids all along their journey but we'll just do it when they're high schoolers maybe they can deal with it then versus like the sh the actual catastrophic moment of trying to climb a rope when you're a fifth grader but the bigger picture thing here is going back to DEXA scans is I'm skeptical of any test that tells me that it is going to be able to uh, whether metrics or whether checking a box like assess whether you're quote unquote healthy or not because Science has continually progressed and the tests that we used 50 years ago are a joke now. And so why am I going to believe in whatever, you know, it was like 15 years ago, they were doing like the pinchers to test body fat. And now oh, we, we, we did, we did that in high school. That was the, to me, like the fitness test was like, it was cool in high school to not care about the fitness test. The pincher thing was just like, let's put everyone's bodies on display in front of the whole class pinch all your little, you know, lumps of fat and tell, you have to say out loud what it says. And then everyone's comparing it afterwards no. in the locker room. Yes. I was like, okay, this is probably not great for, uh, for morale. Why are we doing this? I think we're good. High school was bad, man. And it's forever. It's forever. Yeah. If I think about this all the time, Kara, and, and justice probably applies to you too. If I could have back Every single day, the time that I spent thinking about my body, thinking about if that day my sweatpants aren't feeling right, and I'm like, if I could have that time back, I could probably write another book a year. I mean, it's a lot of time. And I'm like, think about all of the cumulative time that women are spending thinking about how their bodies aren't right that could be funneled into so much bigger, more beautiful things. It's maddening. It's yeah. maddening. So a specific question, because one of, uh, and the article we're talking about was coming out of the University of, of Oregon, but the track coach there said, a good mathematician probably could be a good track coach. Now, no one is disputing that track and running more so than other sports, like numbers are involved and there's not the dynamic that comes at play when you have basketball or soccer and, you know, other players are, are ping-ponging off of one another. But as someone who has lived in this world, I can't imagine that you think all of the good coaches you have simply could read Excel spreadsheets. Like when it comes to running, like what makes a great coach? I mean, coaching is an art. There's so many layers to it. Coaching is seeing when your athlete needs to be pushed, seeing when they need to be reined in, seeing when they need a pat on the back, seeing when they need tough love. There's so much more than a number on an Excel spreadsheet. 
And, you know, also like not all bodies can be the same leanness. You know, I trained with Emma Coburn, Shalane Flanagan, some of the leanest people on the planet. I could never, ever look like that. And it didn't matter. I even tried, you know, and <laughs> yeah. it just didn't happen. I just didn't lean out that way. And everyone's different. So I, I think falling on this, it's a numbers game. It's so easy. You just have to be a mathematician. You're removing human bodies and human beings coaching is an art and I think that would be the same in soccer and basketball and all other sports it's seeing people reacting especially in running I notice your your knee lift is not good today we cannot do this workout or we're going to cut it back or today you're having a great day you have so much pop we're going to push a little here it's like a constant giving and take yeah it's like you can have all the ingredients for a cake but if you don't know what to exactly what to measure it's nothing it's just a bunch of ingredients, right? And so that's what yeah. I feel like there's an art to it to knowing like, yes, I need to add this and know a little less than that. And so I just, yeah, there's so much more to coaching than numbers, in my opinion. Did you ever, you know, the band that you could wear or or any number of them that exists now, the ring? I had one for six months and it started to make me mad. It was maddening is the way to put it because I would wake up one morning and it would tell me on my little app, you feel great today. Today is the day for a big, long, hard workout. And I would be like, but I don't feel that way. Like, yes, maybe I slept a lot. And maybe it's been a couple of days since like, my heart rate was at a certain rate. But like, I don't think there's any amount of numbers that ever completes a full story. And so it's scary to me that a sport like running where you can lean so heavily on numbers, people are leaning heavily into numbers. It feels like this analytics wave we should be pushing away from a little bit more. And it feels like we're leaning into it even more. Yeah. And I feel like that's dangerous. We're losing track of like who we are. You know what? When I'm in a race, I have to know, especially when I ran the marathon, I have to be able to trust myself of when to push and when not to push. I have to know my body well enough to go, this is not the time to push, Kara. You're redlining it. Or this is the time to go. Go now. And if all I'm ever told is like, I trust my little watch or my little ring or whatever I'm told or my coach. And then I can't think for myself. Yeah. How am I ever going to be able to trust myself in a race situation? How am I ever going to be able to say, this is the time, this is it. I'm like, well, where's my little ring to tell me? Can I go now? Can I not? Right. And I feel like we get so pulled away from who we are. Also, there's a lot of like crash dieting or people telling you what's good or bad and like value judgments on food that make you question yourself. So then you can't trust yourself because if you eat something that's quote unquote bad for you, but you feel good afterwards, you question that and you aren't able to really build that trust with yourself about what's actually good and what's working for your body. That's so true. It's like, oh, I ate a bagel and I actually had a great run. But you're like, well, was it because I just needed some carbs or did I just luck out? And maybe I could have <laughs> run better if I hadn't eaten that bagel, right? Yeah. I mean, it's like, it's crazy. Yeah. If you know your body so well, and at certain points, even if you get to the college level and you're an athlete, you're getting to the point where you know your body. You're starting to get to know your body. And then especially at the professional level, it's like we aren't ever taught to stop and think, what does my body actually want right now? Instead, you're like, well, it can't have, certainly can't have X, Y, Z. It definitely not any of those. So then I'm left with a piece of salmon or broccoli. Hmm. What does my body want? Oh, appetizing. It feels like we are steadily like robbing people of intuition and of empowering themselves And this applies, I think, outside of sports. I think people's opinions now need to be validated by the latest opinion piece before they actually share it with the world. Yeah. Jess and I have talked a lot over the last few years uh, because Jess played soccer about how we talk about it somewhat, the amount of eating disorders that are in sports, but we don't talk about it enough because it permeates. There are the ones we that rise to the level of like, oh, you know, someone, you know, actually got diagnosed with an eating disorder. There are those, but then there's just like the everyday eating disorders that I feel like the majority of athletes that I knew actually had. And I'm trying to understand how we've gotten ourselves into a place where like now it's 2021 and I'm reading an article about how we're now we're using analytics to shape future eating disorders. It just feels like the thing that I keep coming back to is this idea of like generational trauma that exists in sports where like, I don't know, these coaches were coached this way without love and compassion or something. And they were forced to weigh themselves and do workouts that are extreme. And then when they get into coaching positions, they're like, well, doggone it. 
I was forced to do that, so I'm going to perpetuate it on the next generation. It feels like it's just like getting cycled through sports. Yeah, for sure. It feels like it's the same, just a different story, right? Like instead of me being weighed in front of my teammate or me getting a skin full test, it's a DEXA scan or whatever it is. And, you know, I don't have the answers. I think like I wrote an Instagram post about, you know, what I looked like in 2008 and how that, and I was running the best of my life. I was one of the absolute best runners in the world. And yet I was still being criticized. And I think what shocked me yet didn't shock me was how much that post resonated with just everyday people. And I'm like, that's just what you're talking about. This is trauma. That's like, everyone has felt this at some point and has carried. And, and it's like, we have to carry it. You know, like we put it in our backpack. It's there forever. We never can really be free of it. I mean, I'm at a point in my life where I can go out have, and have margaritas and I can eat a bunch of cake, but guess what? I still, sometimes I'm like, oh, I feel bad that I did that. And so mm-hmm. like, I still have my backpack on. Maybe I threw a few stones out, but like, I cannot get rid of it. And I honestly don't really know a woman who doesn't have at least a little backpack on. And it just makes me so sad. And I'm like, I don't know what the answer is. I mean, I feel like just what you said, it's just like being a compassionate coach and and not just not dehumanizing people so much and shaming people so much. Cause I feel like that's what leads to all of our weird issues with food and it just doesn't seem to end. And yeah, it's like same story, different, a little bit different, but same story that has been going on forever and ever. Kara, thank you so much for making the time. You're welcome. Yeah. You're awesome. Cool. Thanks for chatting about an important topic. And I hope that we can all have like a normal meal tonight. Hey, it's Megan. Yeah, it's like the moment you realize that um, everyone's just been lying to you this whole time. (laughs) Um, I mean, I don't know exactly when it was. I didn't go to a big school. I think, you know, know, we were very successful and on campus we were, you know, the most important and most successful program, but at a very small school with, you know, no basketball, no football. So I didn't have that sort of experience. I think, honestly, I've really started to put all the pieces together as I became more involved with negotiating our CBAs and what we were asking for. And then really, like, 2015, after winning the World Cup and thinking, okay, now it's going to change. We've done, you know, the thing. So many people watched and we got a parade and all of these things. And then it was just, like, literally back to business as usual and everyone telling us that, oh, no, it's actually not. Like, you 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 don't deserve more or your viewership isn't there. The revenue isn't there when you know that it's there. It's like, I started seeing all of these numbers and just the, the landscape around me changing while the bank account staying the same and the contract staying the same, and the things that were being told staying the same. One element of off the looking glass that Jess and I are really excited for is a little segment I'm naming Extra, extra, where one of us reports and writes a story that rounds out, in some small way, the history of sports that we've been taught. Here now is the original in that conceit, a little ditty about the first ever 100 meter gold medalist. But first, a word from our sponsor. Women like to feel safe. Women like to feel powerful. Women like to strap their titties down when participating in physical activities. That's why one of the leading producers in men's tactical gear is making the first ever tactical sports bra. Tech bra! Sure, everyone has sports bras, but not like this. Tech bra is made out of Dyneema, a high-performance polythene tactical fabric that's lighter than water, 15 times stronger than steel, and can literally be worn while being run over by a Humvee. Run over by a Humvee. The Tech Bra comes equipped with two high-intensity, strobing flashlights to stun and disorient competitors. This high-performance wear also comes in silicone carbide, nano-kevlar, and metallic glass. It can withstand sub-zero temperatures and extreme heat, but should only be washed on gentle with light colors. Gentle with light color! Women are up to 400 times safer when competing in Tech Bra, and that's at any level. 
Tack Bra comes in four flattering and flirty digicam prints, but only comes in one size. Only one size. Tack Bra gives you peace of mind so you can keep your head in the game. Tack Bra Tactical Sports Bra. It's a bra. I first heard the story of Betty Robinson about five years ago. It's the kind of story that, once you hear the details, you're baffled you haven't heard it sooner. We got the Hollywood treatment for Seabiscuit, the little horse that could. But we're still waiting for Betty. Let me introduce you to the woman who won the first ever running of the Women's Olympic 100-meter dash, 97 years ago. Let's actually start in the middle of Betty's story, when things got, well, a little topsy-turvy. And Betty ended up as a headline in the New York Times for all the wrong reasons. It was June 29, 1931, and the headline read, Woman Olympic Sprint Champion of 1928 in Critical Condition at Chicago. The day before, a 19-year-old Betty decided to take a break from training. She was focused on the 1932 Los Angeles Olympics to go up flying in her cousin's small plane. It was summer, and the days were long and hot, and she figured it would be cool up there in the clouds. On that long ago summer day, a man named Lee Newland is driving in his truck when he notices a small plane flying above him, about 20 miles outside of Chicago. Newland watched as the little plane rose higher and higher, reaching an altitude of what he figured was 600 feet. When the plane turned left, it stalled midair, and after an excruciating few seconds, dropped from the sky, nose first. Newland stepped on his truck's accelerator, heading toward where he figured the plane had crashed. When he arrived, the plane was in shambles. Two kids wedged into the seats, a boy in the pilot's seat at the rear, still alive, his chest rising and falling. The young woman, buckled into the front, appeared to be dead, the bone poking out of her leg. Newland scooped the girl out of the mess and ran to his truck, placing her on the bed, then driving her to the local funeral home. Focused on identifying the young woman, the director of the funeral home searched through the girl's clothing. Then he leaned in closer to her lips. Shallow breaths, faint, but the girl was definitely still alive. The full Betty Robinson story begins in Prohibition-era Chicago, three years before that fateful summer day. In a world that feels both far from our modern grasp and imminently familiar, young Betty, 16 years old, is late for the train. Already aboard is Charles Price, science teacher and boys track and field coach at her high school. Charles saw Betty sprinting to make the train, and in his mind, she had no chance. So then, as the train's doors closed and Betty slipped aboard, an impressed Charles Price asked Betty if she could meet him the next day. He wanted to time her, sprinting, down the school hallway. Now mind you, it's 1928. Betty's high school had no girls track and field, but the upcoming Olympic Games, to be held in Amsterdam that summer, would be the first ever to include women's track and field. The men would have 22 events, the women, just five, and only two foot races, the 100 meter and the 800 meter. This is to say, the field was wide open, so open in fact, that 16-year-old Betty, coached by the high school science teacher, qualified for the US team. The Olympics would be just her fourth career race. On July 10, 1928, Betty was one of 268 U.S. Olympians aboard the SS President Roosevelt for the 10-day journey to Holland. Here, let's let the day's New York Times set the scene for us. The American Olympic team sailed yesterday at noon for Holland aboard the SS President Roosevelt amid scenes of excitement and enthusiasm. With flags waving and whistles blowing, the steamer, with American Olympic teams painted in immense letters on its side, was pulled clear of the pier, pointed its nose downriver, and started the 10-day voyage to Amsterdam and the 9th Olympic Games. 
The coaches and athletes will have every possible facility aboard for work and competitive. The Roosevelt has been transformed into a floating gymnasium equipped suitably for all the sports which have representatives aboard. A linoleum running track has been laid out on our decks and pits constructed for the use of the weight men and the field event size. The diet of the team will be very carefully supervised as several chefs expert in American cooking have been taken along to ensure against such complaints as were made at the last Olympic Games. More than 5,000 gallons of filtered water is also being carried, as well as all food products, with the exception of fresh vegetables and dairy products. Okay. Ten vegetable-less days later, the ship is docked in Amsterdam. And it's worth noting that only 300 female athletes competed at these games, compared to 2,500 men. Betty qualifies for the final of the 100-meter dash. No surprise, right? We are, of course, still telling this story nearly 100 years later. To set the stage for the finals, let's now turn to Roseanne Montillo, author of Fire on the Track, Betty Robinson and the Triumph of the Early Olympic Women. Now, this is the author's actual voice from an interview she did for WBUR's Only a Game. She had two pairs of running shoes with her. Instead of grabbing the correct pair of shoes, she ended up grabbing two lefties instead of a right and a left. So someone had to send a person to grab the correct pair of shoes, and they barely made it on time for her to end up at the starting line. Just her fourth race ever. What better proof of her naivete than she hadn't even developed a mental checklist for gear, that athlete trademark. But Betty gets her sneakers, the Air Bettys with a little less technology, and the gun goes off. Betty is lined up next to the favorite, Canadian Fanny Rosenfeld. And 12.2 seconds later, the women appear to hit the line at the same moment. The Canadians started celebrating, lifting Rosenfeld into the air. So Betty figured she'd won silver, and that was amazing to her. Then the numbers went up. Betty Robinson was the first ever gold medalist in women's track and field. Winning gold in front of a sold-out stadium in Amsterdam. Talk about getting hooked on a sport. Betty was all in. And when she returned to Chicago, she had a plan for making herself even faster. 1928, she won her gold. 1932, she would win a second medal. Gold, of course. I mean, what else would you win? And in 1936, she would go on to be a coach. Or maybe things didn't go so well, she would be an assistant coach. Something terrible like that. Elizabeth Robinson hurt in air crash. Woman Olympic sprint champion of 1928 in critical condition in Chicago. Elizabeth Robinson, winner of the Women's Sprinting Championship in the Olympic Games in Amsterdam in 1928, was critically injured today in an airplane crash here. Miss Robinson, who was 19 years old, was in the front seat of a plane piloted by her cousin, Wilson Palmer, who was also injured. Physicians said the girl's left leg and left arm were fractured. Her face and forehead were badly lacerated, and there was a possible skull fracture. Miss Robinson was virtually unknown to sports enthusiasts until she won the 100-meter dash. That was from the June 29, 1931 edition of the New York Times. Now here we picture as it happened. First, Betty in the hospital, fighting for survival. Then recovering at home, her goal of repeat glory, gone. The goal now was walking again. And even that, Betty was told, was a long shot. The loss is too much for our hero. In Amsterdam, she'd tasted the future. Sprinting down that straightaway, the crowd roaring. A woman lauded for her physical achievements. But now, for her, that future was gone. Dropped from the sky for no reason at all, just bad luck. Betty cannot get out of bed, and does not want to either. But her brother-in-law, with whom she has always been close, will not let her story end like this. And so every morning he would wake her up and just go and take her for a walk. And initially it was just a couple of steps outside, maybe go down the street, and eventually he would make her run just a few steps, in time, those few steps turned out to be a short run around the block. But the injuries were substantial, and Betty couldn't get into the crouch necessary for the beginning of the 100 meters. Then a light bulb went off. You know what race you don't need to crouch for? A relay. 
once she had that moment of realization, it had a huge impact on her state of mind. It also had a huge impact on how she saw the sport and how she saw her teammates as well. Before, she hadn't really given an awful lot of thought about it. They were just girls. But now, these were women who made huge sacrifices to get to where they were, and she would have to be one of them. And now a familiar twist for a story about a female athlete. In 1936, the U.S. Olympic Committee funded expenses for the men's track and field team, but not for the women. Betty would have to raise her own money. And like most during the Great Depression, her family was struggling financially. Her medical bills had been costly, and her dad had lost his job. To foot the bill for Germany, Betty sold almost all her possessions. With Hitler in attendance, Betty competed for the U.S. in the 4 by 100 relay. Here's the local call, in German, of the last two legs of the race. Keep an ear out for the crowd's reaction when the German team, the favorites and holding a big lead, dropped the baton going into the final turn, allowing American Helen Stevens to blow past for the gold. At the end of the video, the camera cuts to Hitler, who appears pissed at the German miscue, slapping his knee with his right hand. I point that out because this story has all the makings of a blockbuster. A young hero with early success faces devastating tragedy but finds inner strength to overcome insurmountable odds and one last shot at glory. The final act set against the backdrop of Germany and Hitler's burgeoning, menacing power. The movie might have been called something like Phenomenon, which actually was the working title of Montello's book. Fire on the Track, when DreamWorks, co-founded by Steven Spielberg, optioned it six years ago. According to Deadline, Betty's story was pitched like this. Unbroken meets a league of their own with a dose of chariots of fire and the boys in the boat thrown in. DreamWorks' option expired last year. And it's too bad, because if you think Betty's story is still relevant 100 years later, Wait until we dig into everything surrounding that 4 by 100 relay team in 36 that she was a part of. Soon, I promise. Wow, Kate, I really love that story about Betty Robinson, and you did a really good job telling it. My first question for you, just instant reaction. How is she not a household name? How do we not have a Betty Robinson movie? I know. This is why it was so important to me that this be one of the first pieces on Off the Looking Glass because you hear the details of her story and you're like, what more does a female athlete have to do to get the DreamWorks treatment, to get the Spielberg treatment? Even the stuff that she wasn't in control of, the plane crash, the being taken to a morgue, The stuff she was in control of, like winning gold medals and overcoming adversity. Like she has all of those things and she has the intangibles. All of those things blended together. It doesn't make sense other than to say that history is littered with women like Betty Robinson. Women who did things and they're so impressive and the context of them is so socio-cultural and interesting. And yet they've never gotten the story told. And when you find these little nuggets, your mind is really open to how many more women throughout history did these really cool things that you wish that people would highlight. The other thing that I find interesting is that we have roughly 10,000 films about World War II. And World War II is a topic that I think most people find interesting. Like it's a period in history that people gravitate towards. This has World War II history baked into it, not to mention the plane crash and the never thinking she'd walk again and then being in the Olympics. Like, it just is amazing to me that this doesn't exist in film form or in like Disney form. 
You know, that's a really interesting point and one that struck me, but kind of subconsciously, because the second I saw Hitler as part of her story, even though not intertwined, but simply he was in the stands to watch her win the 4x100 relay in her triumphant return. There is nobody in history who has sold more screenplays than Hitler that gets more stories told than Hitler because like someone once talked to Hitler. This is the peace accord. Here is the draft that they, you know, had in the outside Oslo. I'm just kind of making up all of the movies we've ever had. Like if anybody can get a story to have intrigue and to like cast some sort of upshot for Hollywood and for TV, it's Hitler. I wish that weren't the case, just like I wish like serial killers didn't interest us. And obviously Hitler is one of them. But like we have a fascination with these things. And so his appearance in this story also interested me because, like you said, I think that you'd be hard pressed to find someone who's like, oh, yeah, I don't find any of that stuff interesting. Was there anything that you didn't like about this story or that was difficult to tell? Well, one thing that I always had in my mind when I was writing it or reading up about Betty was, as you hear, when she first discovers that she can run and then she discovers that women are being allowed, quote unquote, into the Olympics, you also hear the differences in both events that women are competing in in those first Olympic Games in Amsterdam. And then you hear the differences in the number of athletes, women versus men, that are competing at those games. And the simple fact that a young runner from Chicago, a young woman at the age of 16, can be discovered sprinting after the subway and then be running in the Olympics and winning a gold medal mere months later strikes me as representative of the dearth of competition that was competing for that Olympic gold medal. And so there was this like part of me that was like kind of tweaked by that being like, well, am I celebrating someone who whose achievements now wouldn't even be a blip on the radar? And so that like played on my mind, like how many people were actually gunning for this Olympic gold medal, like dozens you know, now you've got hundreds of thousands and then you whittle it down to women who are like truly competing for it and you're in the hundreds. But like everybody knows if they're fast, they can like try to become an Olympic gold medalist. Whereas then it was like a very small percentage of the population really even thought this was something they could achieve. That's interesting. Yeah, what do you think about that? I think I mean, I could see where you're coming from. I think it's a tendency that we all do to apply today's standards and norms to things that were in such a different time that it's even hard for like I'm incapable of imagining a world without cell phones let alone a world where someone can just see me running after the subway and be like hey so you want to try out for the Olympic team like I Ooh, that's a good voice thank you yeah. I, I I'm trying my best to uh channel our our voice from that piece that you did the old timey Mike Ryan it is Mike Ryan I was trying to like not spoil it but you're right it's Mike Ryan I don't know I think you could say the same for like men's sports at the time because there were MLB players who were going to games after drinking like 12 beers at their local Irish pub and then picking up a bat and swinging for the fences like it, it was just a different time and it's hard to even compare that to now was there less competition probably i think the world was a lot less global right like the olympics weren't on tv yet they were i think the 36 olympics were the first olympics that were televised so less people even knew about it and and i'm sure less people even were able to have like the privilege of training for it and not going to a job that they had to like toil away at for 18 hours a day which is you know not that unlike today too but I don't think that counts against her. I think that's just part of the story. Yeah. No, I think that's a good point because I think I try my best not to apply generational standards to previous generations or modern standards and modern structures and modern thinking and modern technology. All of that, you can't retroactively apply it. Like, Especially if it's good. If it's bad, it's like, yeah... You, you probably shouldn't have thought that even at the time, even though that was maybe a little bit more culturally accepted. No, that's that's an interesting juxtaposition that we try to make that I'm not even going to wade into. I think even like my own basketball playing career growing up in the 90s and early 2000s, all I have is my personal experience, which is I had to work very hard. And there were also people who were really good at it. 
And I don't want that compared to 20 years from now when large percentage of women will be dunking. And that was unheard of before. And so there is that kind of like evolution that I don't want to apply unavoidable evolution, both in stature and technology to someone like Betty Robinson, because all she has is the moment she's living in. And the moment she's living in for someone, a woman to say, I want that. And that's important to me. And that feeling of walking into a stadium, I'm willing to sacrifice both time and money and the projections of men and women at that time. And I'm willing to absorb that for this thing that I love. That's something that I think a modern athlete would have almost no sense of what she must have endured. So I think we can kind of do that retroactive Mm. thing in some ways that are beneficial to her in some ways where you can question like I was doing like, well, what was the competition like? But I think if you're going to do that, you have to project backward all of what she must have been feeling culturally. That's a great point. So in your not objection, but in your questioning of what the stakes actually were for her, you can like retroactively be like, well, considering that not many women wanted to even do this in the first place, that makes her story even that much more incredible. What she went through was extremely unique. I can't think of another Olympian who got in a plane crash and then survived and went back to the Olympics to do the the sport that she could still compete in post-injury. If you can think of anyone, let me know. My Twitter handle is Jessica underscore Smetana. I can't think of anyone else, <laughs> but you're right. Like That makes it even more unique that this is something that she wanted at a time where a lot of female athletes did not or could not. And I promise to our listeners that we will give you a part two to that story because it would be incomplete just to leave that four by 100 relay team, the one that Hitler watched them win the gold medal without telling you the story of how that four by 100 team was put together and the women who were left off of it and the inner workings of the Olympics around the women on that team. Like there is a whole nother story to tell and we will certainly tell it here. I like a teaser. Good work. That's right. I don't know if that's the right time, but, you know, coming off of Betty Robinson. No, you surprised me. That was perfect. Well, Jess, that is episode two. And I'm actually thinking right now that we inadvertently listened to Kirk from Fort Collins because we had no WNBA talk. But... I promise that is not because of Kurt from Fort Collins, and we aim to talk about the WNBA all of the time. So don't think he's won. All right, he is not won. I didn't even realize, but you're right. We we did not talk about basketball at all. But that's cool because we're going to try to talk about a lot of stuff on the show, not just basketball. So today we did a little bit of a running episode, I guess. I guess running is a theme of this. Yeah, Look how I that mean, happened on accident. Running is a running theme. Um, I'm going to stop there, but, and I think it was good that we had the Betty Robinson piece because one element of the show that I know we're both proud of is written reported audio essays where we try to tell you stories and it's not just interviews, but like some of it is pre-recorded so that we can like really dive deep on something that we're passionate about. So hopefully you got introduced to a former Olympian you'd never heard of before. Yeah, and on that topic, we should thank our friend Mike Ryan for lending us his best old-timey voice impression. Yeah, try do it again. Do the thing again. Do it. Mm, come on to the Olympics, see? Will you now talk about the tactical bra in that voice? Strap those titties down, see? <laughs> I don't know if that All one right. worked. I think it did. All right, this show is produced by you, Jessica Smetana. And our executive producer and editor, Carl Scott. The fake ad that you heard, Tactical Bra, was executed by Nameless Numberhead. And our guest today was Kara Goucher. Thank you, Kara. If you want the recipe to Muddy Buddies, uh, I will hit her up and we can, you know, put it in the show notes or something. Oh, I do want the recipe to Muddy Buddies, please. Mm Mm-hmm. The voice you heard at the top of the show, Kirk from Fort Collins, is Neil Flynn, and he is written by Adam McKay. And every time I say that, I feel like I'm really cool. Do you think we could be extras on Succession? I think that at this point, like, I've exchanged two emails with Adam McKay. Um, So, yeah, the answer is yes. And I think if he hears about my Donald Duck voice, all bets are off. (laughs) 
Kendall Roy is gonna have a Donald Duck voice like scene. I don't know what it's gonna look like, but we're, I'm picturing it right now. It's gonna happen. Yeah, or cousin Greg can have a special talent, and that'll be the special talent. You know, Ooh, I, mean, these are, I like these that. are storylines. Like if these are storylines that we can explore. I think we need to hear it one more time. Can you do cousin Greg as Donald Duck? I'll just keep going. I think that works. Thanks for listening, everyone. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.